Welcome to Maximize Your Influence, your resource for the top persuasion, influence, and negotiation techniques that will help you maximize your success in life and business. And now, here are your hosts, Kurt Mortensen and Steve Olson. Welcome to episode 53 of Maximize Your Influence. Steve Olson here. I have Kurt Mortensen with me. We're queued up with a blunder. We're queued up with a great article that uh, might contradict the past couple of podcasts that we've did and might offend some people, which we're happy to do as always. Kurt, how have you been? I haven't talked to you for a while. Yeah, it's been a while. And hey, we're back on the playing offense, offending people, I guess it would be. And hey, episode 53, that means a whole year has gone under the bridge and a we're still going strong. A whole year of our podcast and the world is still turning. Look at that. Still turning and the people in Iran are more excited than ever about the podcast. Are we still yeah, getting downloads yeah, in Iran Yeah, we're still like getting before? them. I think they've tapered off a little bit, right? <laughs> oh, well, we must have offended them The Ayatollah them too, must anyway. have said, you know, no longer. You can't listen to the podcast. Yes, cutting it off. No more downloads to those yeah, American yeah. people. We'll just offend <laughs> you anyway. <laughs> well, cool. Let's go ahead and get rolling, Kurt. What do you say? I've got uh, we we spent these last couple episodes interviewing Maureen and talking about the psychology or the persuasion side of, of women and how their brain is different than men and how you need to, to persuade them. And they, of course, make up a huge market segment and you know i've always heard all kinds of studies that they you know if you want to really sell a product well market it to women well the amazing thing for the most part is what what more 80 90 percent of the decisions are made by women those purchase decisions yeah. in, the, in the home so that is a, i think it's even bigger than we think as far as really understanding how that works and of course one of the big things that you can do to offend a woman in a situation we hear this all the time with people trying to buy cars or even timeshares where they're focusing on the man and the woman has all the money and of course they get offended and leave and don't get the sale because they're focusing on the wrong person they don't know how to adapt and adjust and know who their true yep, decision maker is yep that's true that's true I know, for example, when I'm rehabbing a, a residential property, I always really focus on the areas of the house that I know that the woman's attention is going to be drawn to because that really is what makes the call in most cases. You may have some relationships where the man is just, he's the sheriff and, and is quite overbearing, but in most cases, if the woman doesn't sign off on uh, the kitchen, for example, the master, the master bath, you're not going to have a deal because the guy, he's focused on the backyard and the garage, Right. Where am I going to put my grill? Where am I going to put my car? Where's the basketball? Where are yeah. the tools going to go? And the woman is, of course, much more concerned about the practical things. And, hey, we got to cook dinner every day. Uh, whereas your disastrous projects out in your so-called shop are going to fade over time. So let's look at something more important here. So I, I hope that was helpful for all of the all of the listeners out there. And as always, please continue to send us your feedback. Maximize your influence at gmail.com. We are still tweaking the new website that has come out, MaximizeYourInfluence.com, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or dial it in with Stitcher Radio and uh, Windows Marketplace, all those places, that's where we are. And you can just go to the website at MaximizeYourInfluence.com and listen to the shows directly there. That was a mouthful. Yeah, I'm there tired we go. now. We're done. See you next week. Make it happen. Yep. That's the, yep. the end. <laughs> we just get on here to tell you to listen to our show, and that's all we do wonder how long we could ride that train. Be kind <laughs> of a good experience. Kind of like when uh, Kramer on that episode of Seinfeld took the sob for a drive and was out of gas. <laughs> yeah, he decided that gas go? was a total con <laughs> and you didn't really even need it. <laughs> <laughs> 
until you're walking, you're like, well, yeah, yeah. You think, think it, that and then all of a sudden the sputter comes and it's not a con. So there you go. Well, we've really been delving into the, the woman thing. We're going to do it again today. And ladies, I am sorry, but a recent study shows that you get lied to in negotiations more than men. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Here's the yeah, offensive well, part. Go I, for I, it. I didn't write the study. Okay. I'm just reading the facts here. <laughs> But we know the messenger gets shot, <laughs> oh, okay, so go thank for you. it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This, uh, I'll quote from the article here. Think women get cheated at the negotiating table? That painful cliche has found new life in a U.S. study of MBA students who, true to form, cheated females more often than males. First, researchers at University of Pennsylvania and UC Berkeley had prospective sellers, both male and female, negotiate with student buyers. Sure enough, the buyers said females were warmer more incompetent, and more easily deceived. Warmth may decrease women's resistance to lies because directly confronting deception is considered impolite, write the study's authors. Another key, people considered less competent appear unlikely to scrutinize lies. The research has again paired off students, this time one selling real estate intended for tasteful residential purposes and the other secretly buying it to develop a high-rise instead. Again, female sellers got cheated more often even if the buyer was female. The study found that buyers would blatantly lie to women, saying something like, oh, there'll be luxury condos, while telling men, I can't tell you their true purpose, or even admitting the truth with, I'm not supposed to tell you this, but... So here's the numbers, Kurt. Men admitted to lying to women 24% of the time, and to men only 3% of the time. Women lied to women 17% of the time, and to men 11% of the time. So... Obviously, the men are more dishonest in general. <laughs> Although, well, you know, it's funny is men lie to other men 3% of the time. Women lie to other women 11% of the time. So it's kind of like, you know, men are more honest to other men and really lie to women a lot. But women, you're not off the hook. You lie to yourselves 17% of the time. So uh, what do you think, Kurt? You know, those are interesting numbers as far as negotiation, you know, women lying to women, men lying vice versa going all the way around, how there's always deception. That's the first lesson. Regardless of the gender, there's some type of deception you need to look out for. I'm wondering where that's coming from. I wonder if it comes back to, to sports. You know how some guys, no matter who it is, they're going to win. It doesn't matter if it's the opposite sex. They're going to win. They're going to plow them over. They're going to win the game. I wonder if that has anything to do coming to the negotiation that, oh, I can take advantage of the situation and yeah. I'm going to win. Well, that was an interesting point of the study that it said that people who come across as warmer are also perceived as more incompetent. So if you're nice and have that warm personality, people might think you just don't know what you're doing. That's not really fair. We all got to be jerks now or something. <laughs> well, of course, life's not fair. It's just we have to deal with reality here. But that's an interesting perception that if you come across as cordial or too nice, like, aha, and they go for the jugular quicker than if you're really stern and I guess, yeah, so th front. they say that you catch more flies with honey than with vinegar. Uh, probably not necessarily the case. You got to be nice. You got to be personable. You got to connect. But I think that you need to not be afraid to show that there is a cold, hard business side to you and that you're not to be taken advantage of. And, you know, too, I think the big picture here, too, is this just a one time negotiation. You'll never see this person again, which we know is not true. It'll never happen. Or is this a long-term relationship? And that totally changes how people act and the deception and things that happen during a negotiation. If they think this is it, one-time deal, I'm going to get this little trinket in Mexico versus, hey, I need a long-term business Good point. Relationship. Good point. I think that probably – that's one thing that they couldn't control for in the study. I think that's difficult. I mean we used to do that in seminars, tell people that 
hey, you know, assume that you may come across this person again when we're doing negotiation exercises, right? You might see them again. You might have to do business with them again. But I still think it's difficult to quantify because in reality at the seminar, they're not going to have to see them again. That's different, you know, doing an exercise as opposed to in the real business world of, hey, this guy's out there. I might have to do business with him again. <laughs> well, that's interesting about the seminars is everyone's enlightened and giving back and everybody wins. But when there's something on the table and they're going to win something, yeah. look out. <laughs> it comes back to that famous negotiation exercise where you get a kind of a weaker woman to come up with this big, strong male and they get a buck every time they arm wrestle. Whoever wins gets a buck and the guy's up there, <laughs> right? He wins five or six times versus the lesson being if they would talk and work together and go back and forth, they could win 10 times more money by working together. They could both win. But when it comes down to it, that male's like, ooh, going to win. Yeah, caveman kicks in, you know. Mm. <laughs> Must win, be stronger. Yeah, yeah. Well, good. Let's, uh, let's move it on off of the article moment here for just a moment. And we want to continue uh, now that we've finished with Marine. We have some other guest interviews coming up uh, here within the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned. But today... We want to talk about the side of charisma that I think is most interesting to all of us, right? You you know the, these charismatic people. And, I mean, when they leave the room, Kurt, you just feel better off. You're like, hey, I'm I'm pumped. That guy was here. He said cool stuff. He's charismatic. I'm, I'm excited about life again, right? <laughs> yeah. I can do this. I mean, that's what you're looking for. I can do this. I, I can see myself doing this. Exactly right. So the key here being... Charisma involves inspiring others, duh. And it's not just on the, you know, the motivational side of things. You know, we all think about the halftime locker room speech for a football game or something, or Tony Robbins up there. I'm going to inspire you, right? We're talking about on a much more subtle level, especially in the business world, because, hey, what if you have a really plain job that just isn't very exciting, right? The last thing you need is Somebody coming in here telling you to do a better job or you're going to live in a van down by the river. Give you some. And I live in a van down by the river. Cheesy motivational speech. It has to relate to your frame of reference that you're seeing your work through. So the cool thing about that, though, is that the same principles that we use for the halftime football locker room speech, they also apply to you know, you've got a, a room full of auditors that you need to get your numbers up <laughs> or whatever it is for, for this quarter or a room full of insurance salespeople, whatever it is, that foundation is still there to inspire. It's just done in a different style than than the halftime locker room speech. And that's what we want to break down for you today is if you need to increase your perceived charisma, well, you first need to make make it so people feel inspired around you. And if you're not a real hypey person with a ton of energy, that's okay. And I think that's the myth that we need to dispel first. I mean, Kurt, you don't really have to be that hypey, cheesy, motivational speaker type to inspire others, do you? No, not at all. When you look at truly influential people, it's, it could be lifting their moods. It could be adjusting their emotions, increasing the energy in the room. Basically, after they've talked to you, they feel better about themselves. They can see themselves doing it. This is a full-time job, but not only for ourselves, to inspire ourselves, to inspire others. Because if we're not inspired, we can't inspire anybody else. And people generally want to grow and improve themselves, and they thrive on these high expectations. And it's refreshing for them to feel hope, energy, and inspiration. Because the studies are amazing that most business professionals are uninspired. Only 10% of employees look forward to going to work, right? And that... 
People are looking to be inspired, something to work for, to be part of a goal, to be part of a team, to be part of a cause, to be part of something big, something that can inspire them to do better, to do more, to to change the world, make the world a better place. Whatever it is, people want that. And right now, if only 10% really love going to work and love what they're doing, we need to shift gears and become more influential and work on inspiring Most of the questions I give you, Kurt, are kind of softballs. All right. I've got a fastball for you here. All right. <laughs> All right. Bring it on. What, let, let's just say that you are a some kind of a team leader, a manager, a sales manager of some kind, and you have salespeople and, and staff that you're responsible for. And we all know that these people get in the grind of the daily job and, and have these tasks that they've got to do day after day that can sometimes seem pretty menial. I mean, how are you going to really inspire them to do something and, and to feel better about themselves or their job when just the very nature of what they do is many times just not inspiring at all? And that's a tough one. That is a, a curveball. That's a slider right there. It. Because it depends on the situation. If you're talking about somebody on the assembly line versus, you know, they're doing a menial task, there's a variety of things that you can do. But when you can really boost someone's self-esteem, we've talked about the law of esteem, using praise. When you can have a common goal that everyone's working for, even a common enemy that you're trying to get away from or you're trying to attack, being together, working together, common cause, becoming better, improving yourself, improving the product, improving the service, changing customers' life. If you can tie into something that works for everyone, that also helps. That inspires people. Even children at a camp, right? If they can come together, they're fighting with each other, but they come together because truck with all the food has a flat tire, they have to go and save that. Or the camp on the other side of the hill, they have to come together to beat them in this competition, brings together, inspires people. But then, you know, on the flip side, some people are very difficult to inspire, and sometimes you have to use a little desperation. And when we talk about motivation, there's two motivators, inspiration and desperation. But even when you use desperation or fear, you could build a little pain, which motivates people, but you always buffer that with some type of hope or inspiration or the future. It's going to get better. We can do this. We're part of a team. Makes the biggest difference in the world because people are missing that in their lives. They're just going through the drudgery. Managers think that paying them is enough. But people work for a lot less money if they're part of a cause, if they're bringing hope, if they feel part of this team. That's what inspires them to do more than anything or any money. I hear a do. couple of recurring themes in what you just said. And I, I was writing furiously while you were doing it, <laughs> trying to, to get them down so that we could break it down a little bit. And there's more than this, I'm, I'm sure. But four of them that I thought that would be interesting to focus on when we think about inspiring others. And one of these is going to account for what you said, that some people just don't want to be inspired or are difficult to. And then a little bit, a little bit of ethical fear might do the trick, but you can't just run on that all the time or you're just, you know, you're going to be destroyed. Like you said, there has to be a light at the end of the tunnel. And I've heard you say a lot of times that people don't go out, go to the dentist out of inspiration, right? They, they got to go because right. I'm going to get a cavity. But, you know, when they're there, the dentist says, hey, look, if you do this, that, and the other, and you do better going forward, you don't have to come back here as much. And it's quick, and it's easy when you do come back. So that's like a little bit of a microcosm of what we're talking about here. But what you had said one thing, and I thought about it, you said raising somebody's self-esteem. Because I was thinking about that, the assembly line worker type job. Right. I mean, what pride is there to have in the work other than getting it done on time? I mean, you're putting you're on an assembly line. Right. That, of course, I'm not trying to be totally specific to that, but just try to 
that type of position where eh, you're just cranking out the work every day. But like you said, it's raising their self-esteem and making them feel good and appreciated in many cases is the best that you can do there. So how, how would you do that? Uh, what, what are some of the daily things? And then maybe some of the things that a manager or a boss does over time to bump that self-esteem up of their employees so that uh, you get the production increased and these people like coming to work. Well, you have the micro picture with, let's say they're putting bolts on a, let's say a widget, whatever it is. You can say that, look, you have only a 99% success rate with what you're doing and everyone else is averaging 90%. It could be how often they're on time, how their station is the cleanest. I mean, you can go through the micro things, so specifically for them, what they're doing. And that's a key thing about praise we've talked about before. It has to be something specific they can't refute. They know that it's true. You just can't say, good job, or you're the best, or people like you, as we know. It has to, I mean, that's better than nothing, but you have to be a little more specific in that. So they might be, as far as the whole assembly line, they might have the highest success rate in this particular thing, or the on-time rate, or... The as far as downtime, it, it's the smallest of all the people. That's the micro. Then the the macro would be if they were in a production line for cars. Maybe this car won an award. It was the best of the best. It was the best manufactured. It was the the fastest car off the assembly line. It was the best to where the whole team comes together. They were part of the team. They did it together as a team. Either one of those, or I'd probably prefer a combination of both, would really boost the steam. They're part of that a team. They know what they're doing. Is I'm making a difference. Otherwise, you're just thinking, you know, I'm just putting on bolts versus the big picture. They're building the best. Yeah, car that's good. Industry. I had a, an owner of a company that I worked for once, and he was really good at helping us to see the. And, and, and it, this goes into the next theme I wanted. You mentioned a common goal when everybody has a common goal. And he was very good that in the periodic meetings that we had as a company, painting the big picture for everybody. And, and he would say, hey, look, guys, I know I'm not always the best. At uh, telling you this, but you're in the trenches operating this company every day and you don't see what I see out there. And uh, this week I had three customers tell me that, hey, bar none, you guys are the best at X, Y, Z. And you guys don't get to hear that. You're here, you're busting your hump every day. And I want to let you know that what you're doing, what you're producing here is a very good product and people are appreciative of it. And I like that we're all on the same team and everybody is competent and I'm surrounded by good, solid employees that are that know what they're doing like you guys. So let's keep it up. And so what did that do? That ingratiated us always as to we're like, oh, well, we're the best. This team in here puts out the best product and we got to behave like it. And that's such an important point for those that are listening that are managers over customer service or even in customer service. The challenge with customer service and inspiration is they're hearing all the junk, <laughs> all the problems. All the things going wrong, and in their mind, it's always despair and this and that and problem, problem. The company has so many problems. Reality, they're just hearing a small percent. They're not hearing the success stories like you mentioned. They're not seeing the big picture. They're not seeing the people that are using your product or service, and it's dramatically changing their lives at solving their problems. So you have to inspire them with the success stories and things that are happening in the big picture and the vision and let them know that, yeah, this is just a small piece. There are a small percent that – we're having some challenges or can't figure it out. But look, big picture, the other 99%, look what's happening. It's changing lives. It's making them money, and it's making a big difference. Yeah, that's good. World. That's good. So we won't – I think that's the common goal. It's it's uniting everybody behind that that success of what's happening. And so they don't just get stuck in the weeds, right? I mean, your job might be in the weeds, okay? But you got to know that there's something else happening out there that uh, that allows you to see beyond that. 
So you mentioned another one that I really like because sometimes we recommend tactics or techniques on the show that, uh, you know, a lot of the time they're very good natured and kind of have that positive spin to them. We've touched on the negative a little bit here and the use of fear. So one thing you mentioned was a common enemy. And the fact is that's reality. Sometimes there is an enemy to what whatever your goal is as a manager or as a persuader. And uh, getting those people complacent is that you got to unite them behind that. And that is inspiring them to take some kind of an action. So we've seen politicians do this over the years, right, to try to create common enemies and get the attention off of them. How do we use it in the business world more effectively? Well, first of all, we have to be careful that the common enemy is not the office next door or accounting or the CEO. <laughs> Just like a football coach is not going to make the, the defense think the offense is the enemy, it's the other team. And so if we could create, maybe it's another corporation, they're number one and you're number two and you're going after them and you're going to win, it's getting close, you have a better product. It could be the economy you're going after. It could be anything where we just kind of get together. And, you know, I don't know if enemy is the best word, but you're coming together. It's a competition. You're going to win. Everyone's focused on it. There's charts. You're keeping track of how close you're getting. That just rallies the people. It just gives us inspiration and gives us a big spark. Yeah, yeah. We, you know, when you and I operated a company together, we had a company softball team. And it was funny because it – it brought everybody together because, you you know, in any kind of business, you have all the different moving parts, like you said, accounting and sales and, and HR and the exec team. And that culture emerges that you're talking about where oh, those idiots in accounting, if we could, you know, if they weren't there, we could do our job. Right. And then the accounting people say those morons in sales, they're bringing us all this garbage we got to deal with if they would just do their job. But this brought everybody together. We were on the same team for one night a week trying to destroy other, some other company in this softball league. And it, it was pretty cool because it did, in a weird way, generate that common enemy. It was outside of the office, and, and uh, instead of having that enemy and that competition between the various departments. And that works well. That's, it's funny that you mentioned that. When you look at the different departments, I've done these seminars for the American Management Association, and these are large companies that send their managers in. And the common theme is I either have a bunch of IT people trying to figure out how to work with those silly marketing people, or I have the marketing people trying to figure out how to talk to those strange thinking IT people. And there's that rift between them and the same company because they don't understand how they think or what they're doing. And they've become the enemy within the company instead of finding an that's, external That's enemy. a good point. And they're trying to figure it out instead of, I think, uh, Dr. Stephen R. Covey, the, the late Stephen R. Covey. One of the best things that he taught was to seek to try to understand the other person first. And... In many cases, just the effort of going through trying to understand that and them seeing that that's what you're trying to do gets you the leeway and the, and the latitude that you needed to accomplish the task in the first place, right? It's not that they, they even uh, changed their, their habits or changed their procedures. They just appreciated the fact that you tried to understand their perspective uh, because when people don't feel like uh, yeah. nobody understands me, nobody cares, they get that kind of attitude. But when they feel like that, when they feel like you made an effort to understand them, totally different ball game. Yeah, you might not understand it, you might not get them, you don't understand what they think, but if you've tried, even going to another culture, you try to understand why they think that, why they do that, why they eat that, trying this, doing this, talking to them, attempting their languages. Even though I know when I go to another culture and I try to start off and I'm in another language and I try to start off their language, I know I'm slaughtering it. I know they're snickering on the inside, but I've noticed just by trying 
getting out there and putting myself out there that it makes a big difference in connecting yeah. with the audience. So that final theme that I took out of what you had said earlier was that it, in order to inspire others within a business and in this kind of an atmosphere, there has to be the ability to give feedback and input. And I think the first two are the most important, right? We're talking about input was the last one and then making them feel appreciated, right? And, and valued in their, their self-esteem. If they feel like they're appreciated and valued and they also have the opportunity to give input and feedback, and I don't think you can do one of these without the other, it's a totally different ball game as well. I had a, a boss once who was kind of like that. He would say, hey, look, we're going to give some feedback here. And it was so annoying because you knew it was just a facade, right? It, it was like voting in Iraq when Saddam Hussein was in charge, okay? Why do we got to vote? He's just going to win every time, <laughs> okay? But you had to go vote. And that's what this felt like. It's just like, yeah, look, we, all, we know you're going to do what you're going to do. It doesn't matter what we say. Conversely, I've had other managers and people in my life where like, they had this way of presenting it of, hey, look, I'm asking for your feedback here because you're in the trenches. And to the extent that we can, we want to make this easier and more effective for you while increasing the bottom line and, and making the business do better. Not all of the feedback that you give, I'm able to implement. Sometimes none of it. And it's just we have to deal with what we got. But I at least want to hear it. And I'm going to do my absolute best to implement whatever portions of your feedback that I can. And I think that's when it goes from being a, okay, this guy went to a cheesy leadership seminar and we have to endure whatever crap he brought back from that until he forgets about it and everything goes back to normal, right? And that's key as, as a manager or even as a parent. If you know the idea is dumb, if you know it's not going to work, if you know you're going to say no, if you just stop and listen and hear their viewpoint and why they want to do it and why they think it's going to work and maybe let them down slowly, but you've listened, you've gotten their feedback, you're thinking about it, makes a world of difference because if you just cut them off that's when you get into desperation that's when you get into fear that's when you get into short-term motivation resentment rebellion and it just yeah, goes right. from there listening to it and that's what we talk about a lot it's they come to you with the feedback or the input and they say it and they have to say it and and that's that's at a minimum what you should do and then and then it's repeating back to them it's like okay so and so employee or daughter or son or whoever it is Here's what I heard. I heard that blah, 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 right? And you repeat it back to him and you show, like Stephen R. Covey says, I understood you. And then even if you can't do any of it, then you just treat him like a reasonable person and an adult. And you say, I understood what you said. Here's the challenge. It's not that I don't want to, but we've got boom, 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 boom. So right now, there's nothing we can do about that. I'm totally willing to revisit this periodically because if it's that important to you and makes that much sense to you, if I get it all and implement it, I want to. And uh, I think that's a good way of, you know, you didn't implement it, but uh, they felt listened to and you've got that atmosphere of feedback and, and increasing their esteem and you've inspired people. Even like we said, when you're dealing with these jobs that are in the weeds or on the assembly line where you're just thinking inspire people, that, that doesn't have any place here. This is a soul crushing, inspiration killing job, right? <laughs> I think a lot of times you have to imagine that person coming is like a, a balloon full of hot air. I mean, they have to let it out. You have to listen because you don't. It's just stuck there and it's full and they can't listen. They can't think until they let it all out. You let them let it out. They're easier to persuade. They're easier to influence and they're easier great, to inspire. Great. Anything else that you want to talk about uh, on that uh, inspiration side of things before we turn the blunder loose? A lot of you don't realize whether they're inspiration mode or not. When you've talked to someone and they feel better about themselves, that's inspiration. Do they know that you're pleased and grateful for their work? 
that's inspiration. Do they know that you'd go to bat for them? Inspiration. Do they listen and care about your suggestions? That's all part of inspiration. So you have to judge between inspiration and desperation. But when you can inspire somebody, they'll go to bat for you and you could get them to do whatever you want them to do whenever you want to do it. Sounds Very great. Simple. Sounds great. Why don't we queue up Homer? Homer, bring it on. Go, go, go. We love him and we love airline blunders. They just keep serving them up to us. We can't <laughs> announce them fast enough, can we? We, yeah, that's a big, been a big theme. This in our first episodes has been the airlines, probably because we fly so much and it's so easy to find. <laughs> exactly. So you've got one, our, our buddies at Delta Airlines, who I flew on for four hours yesterday, and they really wanted to charge me all kinds of fees. You got to pay a fee to get online, and then they brag about their new free entertainment, and you go in and you're like, oh, only if you're in first class is it free, right? And so they want to charge you for that, and. Uh, Oh, man, it's just getting a lot worse. But what did they do to you? This is pretty bad, I understand. Well, this is Delta. I've always been pretty loyal to Delta. I've got over a million miles with them. At any airline, there's no perfection there at all. But here's kind of almost like a triple blunder. So I'm flying, and it's a really hot day. And, and this plane, they had a hard time getting it started, which was the first red flag. But they finally got it started, and we started taxiing out on the runway, and then there's this big explosion. And uh, the engine caught on fire, what do you know? <laughs> and, of course, the pilot verbally packaged that, oh, just a small engine fire, and it was engine number one or whatever it was. Fire trucks, the whole bit. They pull us in. Flames everywhere. People screaming. They pull us in. I'm trying to get to Gainesville, Florida. Oh, man. So they put me on another flight to Atlanta. It had a mechanical, so then they got me on another flight to Cincinnati, both Delta hubs. That was late. So in Cincinnati, I got there late, missed my flight to Gainesville. And because the blinking light at the bottom of the plane wasn't working, of all things. <laughs> so then I finally get to Atlanta, because I got to go to Atlanta to Gainesville, and the last flight had left. And you know, when people pay a lot of money to hear you speak in a seminar, you've got to be there. That's non negotiable. <laughs> you, yeah, it's non negotiable. So I get a flight to Orlando. And I get there at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. And, of course, they've lost my luggage. And I was traveling in, of course, shorts and a T-shirt. I'm pretty casual when I travel. I rent a car, go through a major storm. I get to Gainesville. It was like 5, 6 o'clock in the morning. And I had to get ready to go about 7. So I took a quick shower. And, of course, everyone's favorite thing to do, you put on the old clothes because that's all you have. So I show up to this seminar in a shorts and a T-shirt. all these business professional in suits. That's kind of that's a credibility a issue. <laughs> So I had that to deal with. The luggage did come later that afternoon, and I've developed enough rapport that they did make me change into my suit. I could stay in my shorts, but that's a whole other story. I'm a pretty easy guy to get along with, but this had crossed the line. I mean, everything had gone wrong, and I decided to write a letter. Right? I kind of, hey, look, I'm loyal. I've done this and this over a million miles. What are you thinking? This is not appropriate. I know here and there, but I, every turn something went wrong. I mean, every turn. And so I write this letter, and I decided to email it, to fax it, and to send it snail mail. And here's blunder number one. Blunder number one, I get a letter. It says, sorry, Mr. Mortensen, that's part of flying. Oh. There's nothing we can do. Okay, so that's blunder number one. Of course, that makes me more upset. They should have said uh -huh, nothing. Right. I would have forgotten about it probably. So I get this letter. It's not our fault. It's part of flying. We can't deal with it. I'm like, ooh. Blunder number two <laughs> is I get a UPS package in the mail with a letter from Delta. It says, we're sorry. We apologize. You know what happens. There's so much we can do except this gift on us. So I open it up, and it's a Delta clock. Oh, come on. <laughs> clock. 
Really? Who's choosing your gift? So every time I look at this clock, it reminds me how <laughs> late the they worst. were. I mean, at least send me chocolate or cookies or something. They send me a Delta clock to remind me that they yeah, were late every come flight on, that guys. day. Come on. <laughs> and then the third one came into the letter, and they gave me a thousand. They said, hey, we apologize. They gave me a thousand dollars in Delta money to purchase another flight. We apologize. They put some miles in my medallion account and made it all better. And so blunder number three is, I don't know which one was which or which came from which, but the blunder is, who's talking to who? I got three separate responses for the same incident. There's got to be some type of database, some type of response. So, hey, some of the responses were really bad. I don't know where it came from where, and somehow these departments aren't talking to each other and give me three separate, completely well, we're going to try to find out for the listeners which one gets you the airline miles <laughs> as opposed to the letter that I gives know, you the I bird and says too bad. I know. From the bird to the clock to the miles, I'm like, okay, who's who? What's going on here? Who's who's deciding who's getting what in what situation? Because obviously they don't. I gotta say, I'd rather have the situation. bird than the clock. Yeah, or even yeah. nothing at all. Just, I mean, sometimes just letting it sit. That's just stirring up all those feelings again and making it worse and making me upset again. You know, waking up that uh-huh. sleeping dog versus just letting it go away. Hopefully, I, I'd like it to go take away. that clock out next time I go shooting. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome to it. <laughs> Blow that thing sky high. All right. Well, that's good stuff. Good blunder, Kurt. Very painful. Very painful. So that's two weeks in a row where we have uh, highlighted airlines' incompetent customer service departments who are just completely detached and uh, reply like robots to your complaints that you give to them. So, Although, to give Delta some credit, this year they were voted number one for customer service and satisfaction uh, up from, I believe, number six or seven. So I think they're getting some things they right. They do seem to be doing a, a little bit better. I'll, I'll give them that. I've been flying okay. them a lot, and yeah, they seem to be doing a little bit better. So we'll give them a, the blunder and You know who hasn't been doing a great job? I've flown a few times this year. Southwest. Yeah. They used to be so on track, on target, customer service, taking care of you. I've heard that from some other people, too. I haven't flown them in a while, but... I've heard yeah, that yeah, they're kind of going there. downhill. Come on, guys, get it together. Yeah, they were the yeah, standard there yeah, for a while. So. All right, well, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Like I said, make sure you check out the blog, MaximizeYourInfluence.com, and you can email us at MaximizeYourInfluence at gmail.com. If you have questions, if you want to nominate ninjas or blunders or anything along that line, and, and like we always say, please subscribe on iTunes to the show. We had a great time doing this one, and we will see you next week. Catch you next week. 